Revelation chapter 11. And before we go to that, we're going to connect this to Revelation chapter 10 with the little scroll. So it's kind of right that it's there in the bulletin. Um, so let's start reading in Revelation 10 verse 8, and then we'll go through 11:14. Before we do, let's let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for um, your presence among us, your promised presence. Um, thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would um, help us to attend to it well, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to obey, that you would help us to see grace and mercy, and then help us to be more like Jesus even when we leave here today. And we pray this, that you bless the preaching and hearing of your word in Christ's name. Amen. So Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it was, I, I don't ever interrupt my reading of the word of God, but I'm going to do it now because... I, to, I forgot to say that. Here's, a, here's I want you to hear this, okay? Um, it, it, Revelation is one of those books that a, a lot of people, if they don't know anything and they got these ideas about what Revelation is in their mind. So, so you had to be careful that we want God's Word to speak to us freshly this morning. And the first way to do that in a first reading is just listen to it without any of these preconceived ideas going into it and trying to say to yourself, well, what's that? Is this old? Is this new? What is it just... Pretend you're reading a book, okay? A, a, a book with symbols and images. Just don't try to think exactly what does this mean and exactly. Just let the imagery kind of hit you first. And then we'll get into, you know, what is the actual temple? What is the actual altar? You know, what are these things? But just kind of let, just allow the imagery to hit you because it's supposed, this is apocalyptic literature, which means it's written in a particular genre with symbols that, that mean other things and, and um, that's going to give us literal truth, but it's supposed to kind of hit a different part of the brain, a little more artistic part of the brain, a part that helps you to see things a little bit differently. So let me start again in 11.1 but I do just want you to kind of just, just allow the images to be images like you're reading, a, like a child reading a children's book. So I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of a great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And so I had to keep in mind as we're trying to figure out now, okay, what does he intend by these symbols particularly? And the way that we're going to go about figuring that out is, is there anywhere in the Old Testament that he's obviously pulling direct imagery from? And the answer has consistently been, yes, it's very obvious where this comes from. So we're going to look at a couple of places, and particularly in a little bit, we're going to, well, I'll tell you when we get there, but we're going to put a bookmark there, and we'll figure out how to find these Old Testament prophets and places where we see these things. They had to remember, at the beginning of the book, you had the letter to the seven churches. So the letter to the seven churches where um, Jesus is you know, saying, tell each church church this and the churches are symbolized as seven which is a number of fullness of completeness um, and they're candlesticks with lights and he holds the stars that goes on top of the candlesticks in his hands and he walks amongst Jesus walks amongst the candlesticks so he's amongst the churches and the churches are lights in the world and there are some churches that were enduring persecution was really beginning there was somebody who one church had experienced um, persecution unto death um, another church had just completely abandoned the gospel and was just becoming like the world. And there's just like, you know, you're almost dead. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever let me in, I'll come in with you. So he's calling people to remember Jesus Christ. That no matter what you're going through, whether you're a good church that's holding firmly to the word of God, or you're in a church that's just almost dead because they've almost abandoned the word of God, that God says, I will not abandon you as long as you remain faithful. And he calls that conquering. And that's that Greek word, nikeo, where they choose Nike gets its name from. It means to conquer. And so he says, to the one who nikeos, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will give heaven. I will give myself. I will grant to eat from the tree of life. So this whole letter is a revelation to the churches. Not just those seven, because there are seven real churches. But within this book, we know that they also represent the entire church from the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven to the time of his return at the end of time. And so he says, let me tell you what's going on behind the scenes so as you will be able to conquer through these things that you're experiencing. And one of the things that, we're gonna, that we've seen and we'll begin to see more and more, uh, you know, there's been plagues and death and disease. Like, yes, this stuff happens. Um, it doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean I'm not in control. It's because of the curse. 
and lots of different things that we've seen happening, wars and these sorts of things. But another thing we're going to continue to see until we get to the end is the church, is the church militant, which means we're fighting um, uh, our, for our faith. We're fighting to remain faithful. Um, we, we, you know, it's, it's a spiritual warfare that we're involved in. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and authorities in the heavenly places. So spiritual warfare. Some of you are stuck in your Christian faith or in your life because you have not, you, you've got a foot in the mud. It's like if you get stuck in the mud, you pull your truck over or your car over, and I, I, I pulled my truck over to pull somebody else out. I got them out. My truck got stuck. Okay. Um, you, it's hard to get out when you're in the mud, but somebody comes along, they pull you out, and it's like, learn your lesson. I have a big truck, but it's also very heavy, and if it gets in the mud, I'm not going to get out. So be careful about allowing yourself to have a foot in the world. Because what the world will do, the world will drag you down, and the world can't drag you down if you don't have a foot in it. But how do we not have a foot in the world? Because we live here. And it's walk in the spirit. Spirit, walk by faith, not by sight. And that's the one who conquers. Because the church militant will one day be the church triumphant, as we're in heaven, and as we see the final battle playing out in Revelation, the church easily triumphs over the demonic forces. But we are persecuted. Uh, we've lived in this country for a very long time where persecution has not been necessarily governmental. We've been protected in a lot of different ways. We've, been, we've kind of been like the hobbits in some ways, where it's just like we've been protected from a lot of evil um, by the residual grace of our ancestors. But we're not perfect, we're not good, we're not the shining city on the hill. That is the church, so our country has evil within it too. But the church is always under spiritual attack, no matter where it is. And the best thing that the Lord can do to increase our faith is to allow more trouble to come into our lives. If you say, when did you have breakthrough moments in your faith? When did you have breakthrough moments in your life? When did you make great strides? And it's typically something difficult happened. And it's rare that something wonderful happens and you have this epiphany and, all the, and it just changed your life. I mean, you can say, well, I won a million dollars. And then some people would say, that was my breakthrough moment because a million dollars ruined my life. And I know what you're all thinking, ruin my life like that. But don't ask for that because the flesh will find a way to make any situation you have to be dark and terrible and self-destructive. But when we think of the church as being persecuted, and we understand that the brighter our light shines, the more the world will turn against us, what that can do is give us a worldly response to make us think of ourselves as victims. And if you're a victim, then you need pity, and if you and you need protection. So as the church, we're not asking for pity. Paul says, if Christ is not crucified, then we're to be most pitied. But he has been crucified. He is raised. He is risen. We do have the risen Lord. We have a hope in heaven. So we're not to be pitied. The world is the one to be pitied. And we're not to be protected by anyone but Christ. Because who are you trying to... Who, do we, who is the church, in a lot of ways, looking for protection, looking to protect us? Who does the church want to protect? Who does the church, how do you say that? 
who are we looking to for protection? And a lot of times it's government. Um, a lot of the church right now is very involved in politics. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. But the church to seek to have the government to protect us is what the founding fathers of this country realized was you're, you're asking for protection from the beast who is introduced for the first time here in chapter 11. And we'll talk about the beast in a minute. But we have to be careful about thinking ourselves as victims because then we have to think, well, who are we being protected from and who are we seeking to protect us? And that can get us all messed up because in our culture, cultural way of thinking, we have been able to appeal to the government for protections. And the role of government is promote the good and to restrain evil. But when the, well, we'll get into this in a minute, but I just want us to have our heads in this, that as we're looking at what's going on with the church in Revelation 11, as it is being attacked and the witnesses are killed and the world is celebrating. I mean, that's not hard to see what's happening in Revelation there. It's the beast that's coming after them. And they rise victorious. And so our role in this world is to be the witness for Christ to the world, the world will not like that, and in the increasing ways in different parts of the world, it couldn't get much worse, will seek to stop that. Our response? Preach harder. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Repent. Speak truth. And that's our call. So, and we see that this is what this is about. If we don't get anything, that's what we should get. So, 11.1. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given to the nations, and they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. So this measuring thing. It's like, that's kind of weird. So, let's... Um, if you want to later, you can read Ezekiel chapters 40 and 41, and he's measuring the temple, and he's doing lots of these things. But where I want to go particularly this morning is Zechariah. So Zechariah is not as hard to find as you might think. It's the next to the last prophet in the Bible. So if you can find Matthew, which is the first gospel, or you can always use your table of contents, and then you'll you kind of see Malachi and then Zechariah. So Zechariah and Malachi. So if you're in some prophet and it's not... Zechariah, then keep going back toward the Gospels. And if it's Malachi, then you just got one back to go. So Zechariah chapter 2. Now what's happening in Zechariah is um, God's people have been in um, exile, Babylonian exile, and the 70 years is up, and, and they're returning. Cyrus has issued an edict that the people should return. Ezra and Nehemiah are told, go and, and rebuild the temple that's there in Jerusalem. 
And so they're going to do that. And then Zechariah is prophesying during this time. And then we're going to go one prophet back from here and look at Haggai in a second and see what they have to say. But Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1, Zechariah is... is because, and here, too, is what's going on with the people. Uh, the people are returning to Jerusalem, and you can imagine, you know, it's pretty much in ruins. They had to rebuild the temple. There's enemies everywhere. They're like, what, what happened to God? Why are things so difficult? Enemies are surrounding them, more or less. They're like, it doesn't matter how good we live. We can live faithful lives and still bad things happen. Why should we even try? And so the, God is speaking to his people and telling them, you know, take care. And so it's interesting that in the Revelation... This is the same thing God is saying to the churches today. Don't look at what's going on around you. We are building the church. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. And the way he does it is through our witness by his Holy Spirit. So Zechariah 2, verse 1. I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem. To see what, what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet me and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. A, a, a village without walls. This is the church. It's a church without walls, basically. We, uh, in the Old Testament, Israel was, was kept to itself. You uh, were to go into the world, but... You had to be separate from the world. But now we live in the world, and we're not to be kept separate from the world. We're to go into the world with the gospel. And that's what these people are, are saying. You're going to be villages without walls because there's so many people. In verse 5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And so what you see in Zechariah, and there's this measuring line, and in Ezekiel 40 and 41, he's measuring these things. What that measuring means here in particular in Zechariah is we're rebuilding, and I am protecting you. I know who you are. I know where you are. I know everything about you, and we are I am rebuilding, and I am protecting. That's what this is about. This is why it's measured. And then if you keep your finger there in Zechariah or a bookmark of some sort um, <clears throat> what's he supposed to measure and what you see in measuring is the temple of God so lots of people read this and, and have lots of different ideas on how they're supposed to read this and so if we just let it speak and it's supposed to be speaking to the churches then you know they're like okay well they're going to Jerusalem and they're measuring the actual temple of God say like, wait a minute one we're in we're in Revelation. This is apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic for something. So we know there was a, a real temple. In A.D. 70, it was destroyed. Maybe this was written before that point, and maybe it was written after that point. It doesn't really matter because of the point of what in the New Testament does the temple have to do with anything. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 3.16, and I'm going to use y'all as the plurals, y'all are God's temple. And God's temple, God's spirit dwells in y'all. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within y'all. I do want you to hear the plurals because don't just individualize it. We're a church. We're the temple. We are the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. 
Now that's going to come up again too. But when you're measuring the temple, you're measuring the people of God. And when you're measuring the altar, what's the altar? There's two main altars. One altar is the burnt, the burnt, the offering of burnt sacrifice, which um, you would take an offering, you put it on there, burn, the smoke would go up to heaven. All that was fulfilled in Christ, but it could also be that if that's the altar he's talking about, it's this Christians as being completely, totally devoted and given over to God. The other altar is the altar of incense that's inside the tabernacle or the temple. And we've seen in Revelation that it, if you put incense on it, the smell would go up pleasing. Um, that that's the prayers of the believers. And so he's measuring that. So he's measuring our sacrifice. He's protecting the sacrifice of Christ. He's protecting in our lives. He's protecting the prayers of the people. This is a protection of the church. We've already seen this when we're looking at the seals. And in chapter 7, there were the, the sealing of the believers before the final judgments were happening. And here what we see is the protection of the believers before these final judgments are happening. So that's what's happening here, is God is saying, I'm building this church, I'm protecting this city, I'm separating you from the world as we see. Leave out, don't measure the court outside the temple. So the temple did have an outer court where the, um, the nations, could, Gentiles, could come into if they were, they were God-fearers, but they weren't circumcised and they were still considered unclean, but they could still sacrifice. But it seems to be what this is about because being given over to the nations, these are bad guys. These are non-believers. We're the nations too, but we're the church. So we are now made holy as the church, as believers unto God. And now the, those who are outside are going to not be measured. They're not protected by God. They are blocked off from the church, but the world will trample the holy city, and that's Jerusalem, and then we'll see like, that's the church, <laughs> that the Jerusalem comes down adorned like a bride later in Revelation, so he's still talking again about us as believers. Uh, we're going to be trampled for 42 months. Mason, do the math. Tell me how many years that is. Three and a half. Perfect. It took me longer than that to do it. I know you'd have got it eventually. I ain't got that kind of time. So yeah, it's three and a half years. And I will, so it's like three and a half. All right, and I hate to do the numbers thing because it always, not everywhere in the Bible do you do this. But in Revelation, symbols. So what does the number three and a half represent? Well, first of all, it's half of seven. Seven is a number of completeness. That means that this trampling over the church by the nations, it's not going to be a complete trampling. And it will be cut short so that as we see the history of the church from the from the ascension of christ to the last day there will be a trampling but it's not going to be total and it's not going to be complete and it's not going to be a, a victory for them three and a half also helps us the 70th week of daniel and in the middle of the 70th week sacrifice will be cut off if you do all the numbers there it gets you to jesus christ he, he his ministry was three and a half years and then he was cut off and so now we're in this last three and a half years symbolically in the book of Revelation. So that as Jesus suffered and ministered, so the church ministers and suffers. And that's what this three and a half years in. And then I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Man, look this up. It is amazing who people think the two witnesses. Some people think this is actual two people who are going to come in the future, and they're actually going to be able to throw fire from their mouths. They're actually going to be able to, to um, 
to cause rain, hail, and plagues, and these sorts of things. That's a, that's a, that's a, a widely held um, interpretation of this in the church. Um, I think it's wrong to think of it in that way. And the reason is, it's symbolic, first of all. And if the church is just waiting for a timeline for when is the end of the world coming, then what happens to the church is, we always think we're at the end. I mean, it's been, hit. imagine living through World War II <laughs> and not thinking that was it. You know, you know, 1066, the year 666, was terrible things happened. And it's the year 666, you know, what, what do you do? And so as things get worse and worse, the world continually thinks this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it. Rather than looking at the book of Revelation and saying, how are we supposed to be during these difficult times in which spiritual warfare is reigning? Are we waiting for two witnesses in the time? Is there going to be a great battle between you know, the armies of um, Satan and then the armies of God, and there's going to be physical armies? Well, who's the armies of God? That means all the Christians are going to be armed for war, and we're going to go up against China or something? That means one of our countries are going to be completely Christian, and then we're going to arm up and gear up and use nuclear? What? It's, think. Sorry, I don't mean to insult people who think this way. There's some brothers in the church and things too however <laughs> read revelation for, for allow it to minister to the church and so these two witnesses are mentioned in zechariah they're going to prophesy for 1260 days all right do you want to do that math mason how many years is that can you do that if i give you a minute 1260 years is how many years and you got to use 30 days as a month. You, can, you, you want me to give you time, or you rather me just go ahead and tell you? I won't make you do any hit, and I'll go on with other things. What would you say? Three and a half. That's right, three and a half years. Well, we are glad you're here. So, yeah, and also the last number we saw, 42 months, what was that? Three and a half years, 1,260 days, three and a half years. Why 42 months for trampling the city, but 1,260 days for the witnesses? And it's just one of those things, it's like, you're not, you don't really know for sure. It seems to me as if what this would mean is days are like a daily thing, and months are like it's a continually happens over and over so that the trampling of the church isn't necessarily in this way the daily thing but it's constant but the witnesses of the church that's 1260 days it's counted off in days that's that's what i make of it with this and they're clothed in sackcloth that means sackcloth was what you when you're mourning you're issuing judgments uh on people that you love and care about and you're not happy about it but you're issuing judgments that's where chapter 10 connects because he's given the little scroll. It's sweet in your mouth. It's the gospel, but it's bitter in your stomach because there's judgment. And it also causes persecution. So this is what the gospel does. So who are these particular witnesses? So back to Zechariah. hope you kept something there. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me again came again and woke me <clears throat> like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, so this is a vision, what do you see? And I said, I see, behold, a lampstand of gold, 
So let me, let me keep your place there. Let me go back to Revelation and just read just a second more. So 11.3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These, and we told who the witnesses are, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, so you can see that this is a highly symbolic thing. So Zechariah 4, verse 2, he said to me, what do you see? I said, behold, I see a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it. And we're taken back again to seven churches and things. Seven lips on each of the lamps are on top of it, verse 3. And there are two olive trees by it. Look at there. There's our lampstands. There's our two olive trees, one on the right of the bowl, one's on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? What's up with the angels? I mean, you know, so if you go to ask an angel something, they're going to say, you don't know what that is? <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a device they use in Hebrew literature to, to delay it a second, to make you think. You know, like, hold on, I'm not going to take, then I'm going let to let you have it. He said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, okay? I wanted to name our son Zerubbabel instead of Ian because I thought Zerubbabel Black would be a very cool name, but nobody would have it. So Zerubbabel was the governor in um, Jerusalem that came back with Ezra and Nehemiah to oversee the building of the walls. This is the governor. It's like a king. This is the leader. So he's speaking to Zerubbabel, and he tells him this. This is what these things mean. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. So when we see these witnesses and who they are, it is the Lord saying, it is not by might or power that the church does its work. It is by my spirit. Not by might, thank goodness, because we can be weak. Not by power in a worldly sense, but by my spirit spirit and that has the most power and then verse 7 who are you O great mountain before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace grace to it and then the word of the Lord came to me saying the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house his hands have also completed it then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you so once this is completed you'll know that it's the Lord of hosts for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Again, this is a measuring building device, and so God is building his church. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And I said to him, well, what are the two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And remember, that's from Revelation that we're reading in verse 12. And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? So you have the lamps and you have the olive trees. The oil of the olives is what lights the light, which is representing the Holy Spirit lighting our light and giving us power. Verse 13, he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Hmm, that's getting weird, getting interesting. Two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Who are these guys? What is this about? Because now we've got our two witnesses, and so it's very clear these two guys and these two guys are at least representing the same thing, and we're not 
left without hope to figure this out. Now you go to Haggai, which is just a few pages, and you run into Haggai, and it's the very beginning of Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, Jehozadak, the high priest. So we have the government governor and we have the priest. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, these are the two anointed ones that we're talking about in Zechariah. And they're going to represent what the two anointed ones, what the two witnesses in Revelation, because it's all connected to this, the two oil. You, know, you just see, it's like, you know, some, be surprised to find out that this stuff is actually in the Old Testament. And so we have a lot to learn with this. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord, the, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the, this house lies in ruins? We can say the same thing about the church. What are we doing? Are we building our own worlds? Are we trying to build whatever? Or are we working on the church, which means not the building, but building the people of God? Verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and Lord of hosts means Lord of armies, Lord of great numbers, Yahweh of Sabaoth, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. <laughs> that kind of describes us too. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Build the temple. That I may, and this is build the church, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, and the grain and the new wine and the oil, and on the ground that brings forth on man and beast and all the labors. Then Jerusalem, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoaz, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. And it goes on so that what we end up with is Haggai has commissioned these two men to be the leaders, spiritual leaders of Judah in the rebuilding of the temple. All right, last one, Ezra, chapter 5. Ezra is where you go back toward the front of the Bible and you get all that stuff with 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, all that stuff, and then you'll get to Ezra. So it's at the end of these history writings. Again, table of contents, a wonderful thing. Um, Ezra, chapter 5, verse 1. And I know sometimes reading a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament can lose some people in things, but I really want you to hear and see that the way we interpret Revelation isn't just something that comes out of our head and out of the newspaper. Um, a, a recent interpretation, I've had many people come to me and ask about the end of the world um, and the mark of the beast. The latest thing I heard from a pulpit is that 
um, some country is putting, thinking about putting chips in people's hands and stuff, and that he believes that's the mark of the beast. And so, and I just tried to take people to in Revelation where it talks about it, but you know, if you receive the mark of the beast, you go to hell. So, my way of looking at this, I try not to be flippant, but I think it's good to think of it. It's like, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I've been saved by his blood. I've been baptized. I take the Lord's Supper. I actually have living faith in Christ. I didn't realize that was the mark of the beast. Too bad. <laughs> you got it. I mean, that's what it said. If you have the mark of the beast, you are going to hell. It doesn't say anything about accidentally getting it. The mark of the beast is you worship Satan. You worship Satan's image bearers. You follow him, whether you know it or not, or you're sealed in Christ. That's the two places. So if you're a believer, and we'll keep going, I think I'm not getting a chip in my hand if I can help it. I think that may be a beastly way of trying to control things, but it doesn't have anything to do with me receiving the mark of the beast. So be careful with that kind of thing, okay? Wisdom and the mark of the beast can be two different things. Worship the Lord thy God. Don't worship the things of man. Be very careful with that. All right, Ezra chapter 5, verse, just reading the first two verses. Now the prophet, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, okay, we've read both of those, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, which is Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So just to show you that what we see here in Revelation, as we look in um, verse 4, no, verse 3, I grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, So as we look back and we see that, what this represents is the church, the two witnesses. Everything in the Old Testament was established with two witnesses. If we had more time, I would go and take us to Luke chapter, maybe this would be one of those two-part sermons, Luke chapter 9, and, and particularly uh, the end of 9 and, and Luke 10, he sends out the 72 in pairs of two, two by two. You also have images here of Moses and um, Elisha, Elijah, as, as we keep going. So, and this is going to make sense. If anyone, verse 5, if anyone would harm them, fire pours for the mouth. And, and Elijah had fire come down from the sky. He didn't actually have it come out of his mouth and consume their foes. But in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse... Sorry, I'm jumping around too much trying to get us to the end. Jeremiah, he's telling Jeremiah, your word will be like a fire. Jeremiah 5, 14. I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So this is the fire that's coming out of their mouths. Our mouths is a judgment fire. We're preaching the gospel of salvation, but you're preaching that you had to be saved from who you are. You're saved from the world. And if you do not turn to Christ, there will be judgment by a holy God in the end. And so if people don't want to hear that, 
and this is a lot of what we see in our world today, is the attacks, cultural attacks, and it's don't miss that they're spiritually led and they're against the church. So be very careful about engaging in this type of warfare in earthly ways. If anyone will harm them, this is how he's to be killed. How? With fire. And, and, and um, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians, I think it is, that if anyone attacks and destroys the church, I will, Jesus says, I will destroy him. That doesn't mean the entire church, but there are false teachers that were coming into these churches and destroying these churches through their false teaching. And God is telling them, if somebody destroys the church, I will destroy him. I protect my church, and you are the church. That God protects the church. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall. Again, this is thinking of Elijah. This is just during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters. This is like Moses to turn them to blood, to strike with every kind of plague so often as they desire. This isn't literal. It's in the book of Revelation. But it does mean you're preaching judgment. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them so what this is talking about is there will be there will be attacks there will be death there will be times when the church may look as if it is almost gone and destroyed and what the world does is they will allow their dead bodies to lie in the street of the great city that's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So if you're thinking about you know, Jerusalem, the world crucified Christ. And Jesus, when he prophesied it, he said to them, you will, be, you will weep, but the world will rejoice at his death. And so when the church seems defeated, when believers are attacked, the world rejoices. It doesn't mean every single person that doesn't believe is out there just saying rah-rah. But the world in general... This is the bent of the world. They are happy when these things happen to the church. For three and a half days, okay, again, half of suffering, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations who in chapter 10, at verse 11, you're going to have to again prophesy to these nations. When they see um, the death, they'll gaze at the dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So they're letting them lay there. It's a terrible insult. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. And a great fear fell on all who saw them. So this is toward the end of time when we start to see the resurrection of the believers. So in the final days, when God sets all things right, and everyone who's been martyred, every Christian who's died, every they will be vindicated, we will be vindicated, and we will be resurrected as Christ, and the world will see it, and they will fear. And this is symbolic language we're talking about, verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up in a, in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So this isn't that rapture thing where it's a secret rapture. So the enemies are watching the church go into heaven. It's a symbolic language. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And this is end-of-time imagery. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And then the rest, so there's, they see this earthly judgment that's taking place, leading to the final judgment. And the rest of the people were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. They didn't get saved though, because this is the non-believing world. They are saying, 
they can't do anything else. They see the glory of God. Every knee will bow. But not every knee will be able to say, I am yours and you are mine, which is what we do when we come to communion. God is saying, take me in. You're mine. I am yours. And then the second woe has passed and the third woe has come. So just one last word about this beast because this is the first time we're seeing him. He's coming out of the abyss where we saw earlier these demons all coming out of to attack. And in Revelation, the beast, as we're going to see, is demonized state power persecuting the church and counterfeiting God. Vote for me and I'll set you free. In John's day, it was Rome and Nero, but it clearly represents demonic state power. So beware of government power. Beware of government power and beware of trying to use it for gospel purposes other than the restraint of evil and the rewarding of good, which God says is its purpose. But when government defines good and evil demonically, as we have seen in the history and maybe even sometimes today, then the church must beware. And the church must prophesy to government and the world. What you're doing is evil and wrong. This is not right. It doesn't mean we're trying to get political action parties together. It means the church speaks truth to the world. And that will bring you down because when the when a government when a, when a demonized government, when the beast comes, it wants total control. The mark of the beast is total. You can't buy, sell, trade, or nothing. Look what governments do. They want total control. <laughs> the founders understood it. Our Constitution was set up in such a way to try to limit the beast being able to gather that much power. And it's only good for so long because the church has to shine brightly the beast will at times conquer we may well be conquered some may be killed some may die who knows what don't follow the power don't worship government don't trust government as your salvation in any way limit the authority and power of government in any way you can <laughs> but not using the weapons of the world's making. It's in faith. It's in hope. And you define good and evil biblically, not politically, and then speak that truth to the world. It will cause us to be attacked in different ways. Stand firm to the end. The one who conquers, I will grant the tree of life. He is ours. And one day, we will be with him in heaven and resurrected. And what he's saying to us is, you are the two witnesses. Sackcloth, but witness. Because we're anointed and commissioned by God to do it. This table tells us, and you need me. You need to eat, you need to drink. I'm going to feed you. So let's pray. Father God, um,
Help us not to read too much into things. Help us to follow you. Follow you, follow you, follow you. Be on your feet, on, behind you, on your, your heels. Help us to trust in you. Help us to be suspicious of power. Help us to be at least, help us to recognize evil when we see it and not to be caught up into the works of darkness. To remind us that we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we are to shine as lights in the world. Help our light to shine, no matter who seeks to put it out. And certainly let us not put it under a bushel so that we're not so bright, but that we just set it up in the middle of a room so that everybody can see. Help us to be a bright, shining people of God. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.